Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. November 26, 2023, episode 230, Memories. Hello everyone, Kevin England back again with a new episode for the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. Hope you're doing well. It's a Sunday after the Thanksgiving break here in the United States and been a pretty good mood. It's been uh, a nice little weekend after a couple days break and it's always uh, nice to have a couple days in a row to decompress and enjoy family and conversation and good food and such and Hopefully, if you are celebrating, you've had a good time with that, or Diwali, or whatever else you have going on as the holidays play through here till the end of the year. It's the close of the traditional beekeeping season to me. This is the usually the last vestiges of going into the hives. I'm looking at the weather forecast for next week with highs in the 30s. And we're done. We're not going to open the hives probably until spring. And we'll see where that takes us. I have a lot of things to cover in this episode. So therefore, I'm just going to roll through with what our inventory is going to be for the show and get you on your way. Roundtable number one, thankful. I want to teach you to learn to believe and make memories. And that'll be a theme running for the show. In a similar vein, roundtable number two, let's put away our problems. Let's figure out a way to get above them. And I'm going to give you the concept of a transformer word in order to turn your negative Nancy voice, that little voice on your shoulder that's talking to you all the time. I'm going to turn it around and make it work for you. Roundtable number three, the syringe taking the plunge. I'll talk about using a new piece of equipment, cheap, and how it makes mead making and or maybe some other things in your operation a lot easier hmm made my life happy 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 round table number four seedy have you ever eaten honey with seeds in it simple straightforward very pleasurable we'll tell you how to do that and give you some options round table number five what do i use haven't done this in a while i wanted to talk about pocket get pocket i'll explain what it is it's a way to save off resources that you want to come back and visit later there's a lot of different things in this world to do it pocket is one of the ones that i use and have for probably a decade i have three topics for this episode the first one is about pesticide study coming out of new york state talk about what they found and what it means to us and point you to some resources for that Roundtable number two, are we going to change the way we consider bees overwintering? Of an initial report on a study just released from Derek Mitchell that says the winter cluster does not operate the way we think it does. It's a sink. It is not an insulation cover. That'll make more sense when you get there. Topic number three, listener mail. There's a bunch of different listener mail that have come through recently. I'm just going to cover off some, especially since I asked for feedback from recent episodes. And we'll cover off a couple news and notes from what people sent 
about some of the comments and topics that we've been talking about lately. Last local hive report that's going to involve working live hives for this episode and a handful of closing comments to close out the show. Before we get started, www.bkcorner.org is the website. If you ever want to write to me, just to say hi, ask a question, ask for a resource, tell me something you have going on, Kevin at bkcorner.org. Please try not to use Facebook and all those other things that I have uh, places on. It's hard for me to follow all them. If you write me an email, I'm going to see it at that address. I'll ask nicely. Please say thanks. Rate the podcast. Do whatever you must do. Uh, write a comment. That always helps the production of the show and the fact that it gets found. And I wanted to give a special thank you to DB for donations made. I'll talk about this again during the show, but ongoing donations to help support the cause. I don't do a very good job at soliciting for anything. I pay for everything out of my pocket. I do not uh, accept sponsorships. And if you actually wanted to support the program, way on the right side of the bottom of the page of the homepage is a link to donate to PayPal. And for DB, I just want to say thanks for the ongoing support. Okay, Administrivia out of the way. Let's go ahead and jump into roundtable number one. Let's go. Roundtable number one, I call this one Learn to Believe. As this morning rolls through where I'm recording this, I'm feeling a little sentimental and I'll tell you what I'm thankful for. The catalyst from this opening comes from an odd place. It was what I connected with after sitting in a town hall at work and hearing a cancer patient speak about his experience of conquering cancer with our medicines. In his journey, he had two types of cancer over the span of a decade, and as such, he is now able to reflect back on life's lessons. His summation was prophetic. It wasn't about the fight. It wasn't about the struggles and the hardships. It was about family. And in the end, it's about living life's experience and having the ability to collect memories in your lifetime. Both the memories he made pre-cancer and the memories he made during cancer and the memories he made post-cancer. That sounds a bit Disney, but still, I want you to imagine that everyone in attendance began to reminisce about making memories in their lifetime, and you could feel the energy resonate from the audience present. Since that talk, a week or so ago, I've reflected on that, especially in the past few days, and it dawns on me that this line of thinking applies to pretty much whatever you want to apply it to. And as you might guess here, I'm going to parlay that, put it to use for beekeeping. So I start off this show appropriately just after reflecting about giving thanks to what we are thankful for. It is a thank giving season. 
that how this can help us in beekeeping and making our choices. Depending on where you are in your world of beekeeping, if we go in with the notion that beekeeping is not just a simple pastime, but something you want to do, you, you derive enjoyment of it and you want to get the full rich path of experience, you can make so much more of it. I don't know what he thinks about me saying this, but I'll give you an example. I was having a conversation with Bob Kloss this week by phone. We were talking about participating in a presentation request that he received. He was weighing the pros and cons of participating live to present his topic request or going the virtual route and doing it through a Zoom. I hammered him <laughs> about going. I didn't really offer him much space. As I know, and to the point, going would make memories. To the theme, it's about making memories. And while there might be some risk in attending live, let's say traffic would suck and driving out to Long Island, the flip side is about being there and imagining the experience we're going to have with our peeps that will likely result in an outcome that would be a memory for both of us for the rest of our lives. I think about the uh, times when we drove up to see Randy Oliver in Albany and we went to Maryland and other things that I participated in. In beekeeping, my message is if you take the choices that will lead to memories from the get-go and then eventually you reflect back on your times, you will have a compendium of experiences that will touch your soul if beekeeping is your thing. Now, to that end, that sounds awful squishy and very wide open. But it can be more pragmatic about uh, your everyday activity and just the enjoyment you get out of the experience of keeping bees. What's funny nowadays in today's culture is that I'm out in the bee yard, I'm working on something, I see an observation and I feel like I need to take action to correct whatever that situation is. Make it up in your mind. You can probably come up with 10 different examples. In today's day and age, you could hop on the computer, go to YouTube University, look up something, find a quick fix and solve that problem. Boom, lickety split. Now, sometimes the means to the ends is not the right path to the journey. And this is a really weird place to go from where I just was a moment ago. But bear with me. Give me a little rope and I'll explain what I'm going to. In this day and age, we see a problem because we have the ability to be great problem solvers. We jump on it and we put out the fire. And in the end, sometimes our great execution is actually counterproductive. And we would have been better to stop, evaluate the options, run its course, learn something from it, take it a little bit slower, don't just put in the first quick fix, and ultimately our memories of what we do and how we keep bees would improve because we didn't just jump on something. That's strange, isn't it, to think about it? But in a beekeeping operation, there are times when people do a quick fix and they would have been better off to evaluate it a little bit better. 
And so there's a thing called a SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunity, and threat. It's a corporate thing where you evaluate things. And one of the things I tell the people who work for me all the time, I know that sounds really stupid in the way that it sounds, but I do mentor people at work that work for me and I do it through experiences. Don't take the first fix. Figure out what the problem is. Drill down to the root cause. Think about the big picture analysis. Determine, line up your options to correct the thing and then make the, the educated choice. If you do this persistently, you will end up with better outcomes and you'll have better memories about how your beekeeping operation goes at the tactical and strategic sense. And sometimes you even have to play the long game. The quick fix that you found in YouTube University is going to get you past the problem, but it doesn't really solve the problem. It, it covers the problem. And maybe you need to make a plan to change your arrangement so that in the future, whatever it is you're doing can be permanently solved or you can go about a better process. Let's say swarm prevention. Maybe next year you do something in early spring that changes your operation so that your fix that you want to put in, which is a higher quality fix, works better. Something like that. The last thing I'm going to say about that town hall, reflecting back to it, is from a person who has cancer, one of the most prophetic things that he said was, you can only appreciate the value of hope if hope is taken away. And so I always feel like whenever you have the opportunity to hear somebody talk, I don't know whether that has anything to do with beekeeping, but this is the time of year where people get together with their families and interact a lot. Um, remember that family is precious and relationships and friendships, partnerships, precious. You can only appreciate that when you hope to see someone and hope to participate in something and, you know, so live your life in the way that helps you to make memories. Look back on it with fondness. Do the right thing. And be thankful for what you have. I don't have any idea why I did this, but it just was on the moment and this is how I was going to start the episode. So there you have it. Let's go ahead and move into the next topic. Roundtable number two, transformer word. I spent some time recently doing some self-guided training at work. We have this requirement to do a specific amount of training. I'm recording this on Adobe Audition and I use Adobe tools all the time. Photoshop, Video, Premiere, and Adobe has a conference annually called Adobe Max. They have a bunch of different conferences, but this is the big one. And a lot of times in order to understand my craft, one of the things I focus on are the tools that I use. So I was attending some videos of Adobe Max that were available to me and came across a video related to influencers. 
If you're not familiar with that term, you might see people who talk about things on TikTok or Facebook or whatever. I'll give you an example. There's one called Meat Dad. Yeah, Meat Dad. M-E-A-T, Meat. This is a former butcher who takes cuts of meat that you can buy from Costco in bulk, and he shows you how to trim them and get the most out of them. And you can pick the right one and find amazing steaks out of the specific cut that you could find in the case. He's an influencer for this. That's the example of this. So in selecting through, I was looking at the different presentations in Adobe Max after the conference was over. And I found one called Power Personal Branding, Unmask Your True Identity. And you might say to yourself, well, what does this have to do with beekeeping? The, the funny thing is, as a podcaster, I'm comfortable in my shoes. I've been doing this since 2010. I am reasonably adept at public speaking. I've done enough and have experience to have been in all kinds of situations. I am a trainer and I stand in front of rooms of people and train beekeeping, local, regional, national. But yet, there's a side of me that is that little voice on your shoulder. And you have it too. We all do. That talks to you and says, how do, does the world perceive you? Because we all care about how we're perceived. Well, the point of this is my little voice sometimes is in hyperdrive. And that's germane to the topic of how we present ourselves. You are a beekeeper and because the beekeeping task is so novel, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one with your family members or friends, whether you're sitting at a table over the holidays, having dinner with someone, uh, next to someone in a bus, on a train, wherever, as soon as you mention you're a beekeeper, you end up having to be in that position where you're going to talk about it because people are curious and they're going to ask you questions. You become an influencer, whether you like it or not, at the local level. And so maybe you don't like talking about this, or maybe you're good at it. Whichever side of the coin you're in, but you do have to learn, because the thing is so novel and you're going to be asked, what are you going to say when people ask you questions? How do you respond? And so I will use myself as the guinea pig and talk about this. Um... You have to understand the ins and outs of your presentation and your ability to communicate. And I always feel like when people learn who I am and or they perceive me from listening to say this show, they have preconceived notions of what I'm about. I've heard brilliant people speak, but after a brief encounter, sometimes you don't tolerate them. You don't like what they have to say or the way that they present it. And other times you glom right onto them because that's your person. And you use tricks to present your content and crutches and other things. Um, so I perceive myself in a specific pocket in the world. I am in the establishment. 
I'm an EAS Master Beekeeper. I teach at state courses and other things. But I don't blindly follow the establishment. I go my own path. I make choices in life, right? I operate in the establishment and I'm cordial to the establishment, but sometimes I'm not complacent to the establishment. And I think about my influences for what I've become. Mentors, for example. I have mentors that I've followed, and so have you. You love a mentor because a mentor is showing you the way. They're leading you down the path. But every one of us looks at our mentors and decides things that they like about the mentor. But every once in a while, and this is just human nature and it's not being mean, I don't particularly like what that mentor said about this. I don't like what the mentor did there. And so you start to catalog this. This grows to the bigger influence, your parents and your friends and your colleagues that you work with. We all have that same kind of impression. But coming back to center, eventually that becomes to what's your identity? What do you present when you come in? And you have to reclaim your identity, sometimes by using transformer words. I perceive that people think of me, this is me, as someone who does what I do because I'm trying to seek attention. I want to present myself as a know-it-all. I am so confident in what I say, I'm overconfident. When I'm talking to people sometimes and I think about them evaluating me, this is what I think they're thinking of me. What's funny is, if you know me, I'm not pretentious in that way. Case in point, there was an article or a comment on BeeSource recently about um, an interview I gave. And the first, one of the first comments came and said, well, this guy is an influencer and he does a beekeeping podcast and he's in it for monetary and whatever. Subsequently, people who know me, who listen to the show, know that's not my point of view at all. In fact, I share frequently that I'm not in it for that. And they back me up, which helps me because I see that people get, this is what it, what it's about for me. I'm just doing this like two beekeepers at a bar talking about whatever. And I enjoy the interaction going back to, you know, the first topic about making experiences in life. I don't want to be an attention seeker. It's not what I'm after. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes there's times where I don't mind putting on my presentation because I have the opportunity to teach. I went to the Calgary Beekeeping Conference and I walked around like a regular Joe in the audience. But when I was on stage, I did what I had to do in order to convey the message in a manner that I've learned to do. I don't want to say that it's a Jekyll and Hyde, but I know how to make presentations. And so there's times when I add to whatever I'm saying to make it look the way it's going to make. But coming back to transformer words, I'm always wondering what people are thinking of me. And so do you. It's just a natural thing of life. And so this talk at the Adobe Max talked about this dynamic. And it said, if you ever find yourself in a position where you need to communicate and you're apprehensive about it, use a transformer word. Change what you perceive people are negative about 
into your superpower. So an example from that talk. Suppose you got the sense that people think you're a gold digger. Now, a lot of people do whatever they do to make money. And depending on how they go about it, people have perceptions, especially when it comes to money, about how you conduct yourself. And so perhaps somewhere in your audience of trying to make money, someone calls you a gold digger. And you're concerned that that's what people perceive you as. In the talk, they said, transform gold digger to goal, G-O-A-L, gold digger. Use that as your superpower. That's a pretty interesting thought. If you're really struggling to present your point of view because you're worried about what people think, put it behind you. Use it as your superpower. Transform that into, you know what? I have goals and there's nothing wrong with that. There's times when people get hired to do a job. I say one of the things that work for me in my career has been I'm there to take the garbage out. It's a really funny thing because a lot of times when something is broken and they can't seem to get it fixed, they call in the garbage man, which is me. They take a really super messy, complicated, complex problem and they put me on it because I know how to deconstruct it, find out what's wrong and correct it, fix it. I've done a number of projects and I just seem to have a knack for that. So I'm kind of like a hired gun. Now, some people perceive that label, hired gun, as a bad thing. Let's say you're in tearing companies down and you're a hired gun. But you know, in the end, you're just doing your job and you're doing, you're good at it. Whatever the, the situation is, take hired gun and turn it into a noble assassin. And then when you conduct your work, you know that you're doing it with a purpose. So I'll come back and use myself as the guinea pig, which is what they encourage you to do in that session. Pick your perceptions, your hangups, and come up with something and do the transformer work. So here's my exercise. I don't want to be seen as someone who's an attention seeker. So I'm going to translate that. I always perceive that I don't know. Attention seeker is someone who is trying to be front and center and always, I, I don't think I need to explain it, but if I want to say what I'm doing in order to gain attention, really what I'm trying to do is communicate with beekeepers. I'm trying to have a dialogue. I'm trying to learn from them. I'm trying to also pass on what I know. So I'm not really not seeking attention in the context of trying to make myself look better. I'm seeking attention in order to communicate. And so who am I trying to communicate with? Beekeepers. Beaks. So here's my transformer word. Beak seeker. That's what I am. <laughs> I'm a beak seeker. I'm on the lookout for beekeepers who have a thirst for knowledge and want to talk. There. I put it away. I got rid of it. I'm not worried about it. If I am out doing what I do and I am communicating, consider me a beak seeker. And I guess the only thing left to do is call and get the cape made.
I wonder what kind of emblem I could have. Yeah, find your transformer work. Enjoy the exercise. I'll have a link to that presentation. The guy did a really good job. Obviously, he made a connect with me. And I think you would like the presentation. It's kind of like an NPR style. Yeah, there'll be a link in the show notes. Roundtable number three, I call this one Take the Plunge. I wanted to circle back on the mead made from last year's season. At some point while processing the three different batches of mead that I made, I took the remnants of what was left over from the various batches and I put it into a one gallon jug with the intention of bottling it when the opportunity presented. By the way, thinking back, one reflection to share while it's in my brain. The mead recipes that I made were said to be something that you could drink right away. And the fact of the matter is that's true. We made a traditional mead, just honey and water, a sizer, which is apple juice and honey water. And we also made a special mead with lanternfly honey, which I'll talk about in a moment. And coming back to the reflection of memories, which is why I made that the first topic of the show. What a great time making it, but some not so great times. So number two is uh, about making some changes of how you would do something differently. And so those two segments are now going to play into Take the Plunge. But I had a great time making mead with Bob Gloss. We had a blast. And that's one of those memories that's in the vault. Okay. The opportunity to finish this blend um, bottling is what I was doing. And I'll just give you a minute and I'll, I'll explain what's what here. Afforded me to learn and figure out a better practice for doing it. So when you make mead, just the basics of it, you add the honey, the water, and yeast, if you're doing that, along with the nutrients to the mix. And eventually it transforms what's your main ingredients into mead. And as the yeast, which is a living organism, processes, it consumes the sugars in the honey and it produces alcohol as a byproduct. But eventually the yeast die. They're at the end of life. And they float down to the bottom and they settle on the bottom of the jar that you're using. Usually it's a carboy, which comes in different sizes, five gallon, one gallon are the two that I use. In the process of making mead, you want to get your mead off of the dead yeast called lees because as it sits down there, it becomes kind of funky and you really don't want it to have that yeasty, yucky flavor in your mead. So you rack it off and there's various tools that you can use that come in the industry to pull the liquid out that's good while leaving the lees, yeasty flavor that settles on the bottom down there. I'm no good at this. I'm terrible at it. In fact, every time I do it, and it primarily comes from the fact that I've seen people do this on the internet. Some are good at it and some are not. 
they can get right down to the bottom and leave just an inch of sediment and not waste a lot of product. I somehow always stick the thing in the jar and end up stirring it up and the leaves float up into the mixture and then when I put it into bottles I find leaves sitting in the bottom of the bottle. A little bit of sediment in the bottom of a mead jar isn't terrible but it's not what I want. I want it to be crystal clear with nothing. And so gallon carboys and nor the big ones. The form factor is PTA, paint in the A dollar sign, dollar sign, when it comes to getting the mead out of the container. And I have a few tools, racking canes and bottling devices that are supposed to aid you in this, but as I'm telling you, it doesn't work very well. And what I seem to lack is finesse to siphon off what I want while leaving what is behind. And the word finesse is apropos. It's hard to have the dexterity not to stir up what's on the bottom. And again, I'm frugal. I don't want to waste anything. So I draw it down. I had to come up with a different tactic. I can get the vast majority of it out without disturbing the mix. But when I get to the lower third, lower quarter, I somehow always mess it up. Maybe it's in haste or whatever. What I came up with as a solution to this, after doing a SWOT analysis, I didn't really do a SWOT, but given that I just talked about this, it's similar. How do I solve this problem? I've been thinking about it and thinking about it. The problem lies with the small neck of a carboy. The little tiny neck and trying to stick a rod down in there and move it around and do whatever is complicated. And, it, and these big gallon jugs are heavy and they're hard to work with. So this is what I figured out and I wanted to share with everybody. Take the gallon jugs and I pour the bottom remnants, leaves and all, into five gallon honey jars with a large open mouth. It's like a three, three inch opening. Usually, I can draw it down, and when I pour it off, I have only enough to fill a five-gallon jar, which I have a ton of because that's we have honey business, and that's what you have. The good news about the five-gallon, I'm sorry, I said five-gallon, wrong, five-pound. If I haven't been saying that right, let me change that. It's a five-pound honey jar. I take what's left in the gallon carboy, and I pour it in. I don't try to pour the leaves. If I can pour it and leave a lot of the leaves in the gallon, I'll just take that and pour it down the sink. But eventually some of the leaves ends up in the five gallon. Darn, I keep doing that. In the five pound jar. I screw the lid on and I set it down and leave it to rest for a day or two. Now when you do this, I pour it in so that the jar is really full, the five pound jar, so that there's not a lot of oxygen in it because you don't want to oxygenate it. It makes it taste funny. Now here's what I do. Once it's settled and the leaves are in the bottom of that jar, I went to Amazon and I purchased a 350 milliliter syringe, plastic syringe. I got this idea from pet medicine. 
When we had a dog, we used to apply the pet medicine with a little tiny syringe. And when we bought the pet medicine, it came with a bag of syringes. And after we finished applying the pet medicine to the dog, there were still syringes left over, clean ones, sterile. And I've used those at times for other things. When I made a bunch of extracts, I was using them to draw some of the extract out to make different formulas. But case in point, it learned something from that and said, you know, I wonder if they make really big syringes. Because there was a time when I was using <laughs> a turkey baster. <laughs> I went and got the turkey baster and I was trying to suck the liquid out. And it didn't have the finesse, the specificity that I wanted. I found a 350 milliliter syringe, $12 for a pair of two of them. And I bought them. What's great about them is they can pull up 350 milliliters and they fit inside the five pound jar. And so I could stick it down and when the liquid was clear, I could see where the tip was and with precision, I could draw out 300 milliliters and put it in a bottle and absolutely positively without no complication at all, not draw any of the leaves off the bottom. It was the perfect end to the game. And so just recently, after making that mead, I had a, a bottle. Um, how do I explain this? When you make a bunch of different batches of mead, you end up with whatever's left over as part of it. You bottle it, but there's sometimes when you're left with partials. And so when I made mead last year, I had a bunch of partials and I poured it all into one gallon jug. It ended up being a gallon. And in taking it off, I ended up with some lees in it. And I wanted to draw this down and I just set it aside. I had racked it off a couple times to get as much lees and it just had a little tiny amount on it. But eventually I wanted to bottle that. And then this was the week to do that. And I tried the plunger method, the syringe, and it was amazing. It was stupid simple. It took 30 seconds to do something that has frustrated me so long. Just pull it up and the precision of the, the end of the syringe to put into the typical wine bottles, 700, 750 milliliters. That means two draws of the syringe filled a wine bottle. Now, the last thing I want to talk about here in Take the Plunge is moving mead from bigger containers to smaller containers. We're not snobbish. We use old wine jars that either we've come upon or people give us, or when we buy mead from someone else and we drink it, we save the bottles. But I don't like reusing the corks. What I found is if you go to the internet, you can go to Amazon. I use Amazon a lot, if you haven't been able to tell. And buy tasting corks. 19.5 milliliter ones. The ones that I found, you can buy them with a plastic cap, or they come with a real wood cap, but it's cork that goes in the bottle. I came upon this with things that I've talked about in the past when I made extracts nordic glass there's a company in the world called in good taste 
and they make tasting wines that you can order over the internet. We had a tasting event for work as a team building thing during COVID and I received a bunch of these Nordic glass bottles, which is the third tip to this. I'll get to that in a moment, put a pin in it. But when I was doing those, I wanted to recap. I don't like reusing old corks. And so I found that these corks that you can buy from Amazon, they're really cheap, can be used to put a fresh cork in your mead bottles. Now, I know just enough to know that maybe this is not a great idea. There are times when you want to bottle something and if you're going to leave it for a long time, you need to have the right kind of enclosure and maybe a cork is not the best option. Fact of the matter is I'm making small batches of mead and I'm not leaving them around. We're either going to drink them within a specific amount of time or give them away as gifts and tell people to drink them quickly. I don't think I'm going to go back six years from now and find a, you know, bottle of mead sitting there that we never drank. So your mileage may vary in cork technology. I'm not that up on it, but these seal the bottles and they don't leak when you lay them down and they're fresh and clean. And that's the way I go. So coming back to <clears throat> the last mile in the journey, there's times when you suck the liquid out and you put it in the bottle and you look and you have just enough small amount left over, but you don't have a wine bottle that fits it and you, you don't want to waste it, but you also don't want to put two inches into a wine bottle and leave it on air because that's going to make it not do well. So really you want to make a taster out of it. I have enough of these in good taste bottles, which are Nordic glass. And this is the last tip coming back to it. When I have leftovers that fill small amounts, I use these small jars. They're, they're a two person serving. You can fill two wine glasses with it basically. And I take them, fill those up with the remnants of whatever I'm bottling and I stick them in the fridge. You don't have to hold a whole wine bottle in the fridge. A lot of time wine bottles are so tall that they don't stand up and you have to lay them down and they're a pain and they're knocking around in there. And these little taster bottles are really nice. You just put it in. It's small. It sits in the back. Every once in a while, Sharon and I are making a meal and we call it a cooking implement. <laughs> we reach in there, we grab one of those, we pour ourselves one, and while we're making our Sunday dinner, we might sip on some wine, some meat. So, syringes, corks, and I do suggest, I think it's called Nordic glass. Go to In Good Taste and look at the bottles. Now, this is the, the thing that I think I've talked about on the show. In order to get those bottles, you either need to buy the bottles or you need to buy the wine. What I found is if you go and look, you can find the bottles on the internet. But as much as you pay for the bottles and shipping, you might just go to In Good Taste or some of the other companies and order their tasting sets and you get both the bottle and the wine. That was my tip from before. I'll have links to all of those things in the show notes. But, oh, oh, finally. 
Finally, I have figured out how to get all of the mead out of the bottle without taking the leaves with it. The precision of using a syringe, it's a game changer. Round table number four, I call this one CD. This has been on the to-do list for quite a while. It harkens back to a trip I made for work in Italy where I went to Fuiji and the hotel I stayed in had this product on the breakfast bar. And it came to the surface recently. I went through a spate of making some Korean food. Tom yam soup and some other things. And one of the ingredients sourced from the Asian market was black sesame seeds. And I distinctly remember that being in the seeded honey that I tasted from Italy on that morning from the business trip. And so if you go to honey.com and you look up seeded honey, you will find a recipe for this. But really the recipe is a misnomer. It's a formula. You could take whatever seeds you like and place them in honey and stir it. And then enjoy that on your English muffin, your toast, or whatever else you want to do. It's really a simple process, and I happen to have in our cabinet from making some granola bars a bunch of really kind of odd exotic spices. Hemp seed, chia seed, sunflower seeds, these black sesame seeds. You could put coriander in it, poppy seeds. All of this you just place in a jar and you pour honey over it and you start to combine. In time, as the product sits, they separate. You just grab a chopstick or something and stir it together. It's as simple as that. And the fact is you can make this at home with whatever you have on hand. You could put cardamom seeds in it, pine nuts, pumpkin seeds, pepitas. Use whatever you like. When you're selecting your additions, though, my recommendation is, since you're probably making this from scratch, you're going to go source fresh ingredients. Be careful going back to your pantry and pulling sunflower seeds and putting them in, only to discover that they were bad. Any seeds that have a lot of oil in them have the possibility, over time, after being neglected, of becoming rancid. And that'll give your thing an off taste. Some people go as far as putting uh, fennel and other items in it. You put fennel in, you get an anise taste. That anise taste over time flavors the honey. And you don't just get the sweet honey flavor, but you get a infused honey with whatever you put in. Cardamom and uh, coriander, lightly crushed, lightly toasted, will do that. Another thing that you would find on a breakfast bar, which is not related, is toast some walnuts and put that in and make a walnut honey. If you've never had these products, it's a matter of taste. Sometimes when you scoop honey with things in it, you enjoy both the sweet flavor, the contrasting tastes, and the textures. And it's such a simple thing to do. Seeded honey it's a classic thing that you find on ritzy restaurant tables. And you can make it at home and enjoy something special any day of the week. Um, I, I made this just recently and 
on toasted English muffins and other things, it's great. I love things like brown rice and uh, wild rice because I love texture. I'm just into that. And so this is right up my alley. So toasted English muffin with some seeded honey made with the add-ins that you like. It's a treat you're going to enjoy. I promise it. Go make some. Find the things. Don't get crazy about it. Just use whatever you have on hand. Just make sure your ingredients are fresh. Round table number five. I call this one in the pocket. There's a bunch of different things that people do that I really like, and I've done it myself on occasion, called what I use. If you could live the life of somebody you watch and participate with, let's say, for example, I, I love Jared Pollen, P-O-L-I-N, Fro Nose Photo. He's a photography guy that teaches you all about the gear and so on. There's different things that he uses that I'm interested. Well, how do you film your shots and so on? So what gear do you use? I'm going to tell you about something that I use. Not as excited as Jaron Poland, but it's in beekeeping for how do I keep track of all the articles that I want to read someday. I use a tool called Pocket. Get Pocket com g-e-t-p-o-c-k-e-t.com if someone sends me an article or i find something i can save it to get pocket and i tag it and so not only do i have beekeeping stuff i can get specific about what i tag in with I like coffee, so I have coffee articles. I just mentioned recently about Adobe, so I have things that I save for Adobe and or all the other tools that I use. I have beekeeping, of course. I have beekeeping-honey as a tag, so if it's beekeeping related specific to honey. I have a 1934 Chevy, and so I have stuff about hot rods and my pickup truck and other things. And so what's cool is, no matter whether you're encountering it on your phone, you can use the share icon, and if you have Pocket installed, you could save to Pocket, add the tag, and later, you can come back to Pocket, and it's almost like your own private collection of articles and information that interests you, that you specifically curate. And it's amazing over time what comes through. And a lot of times what I use. If I go to do a show and I'm looking for a topic to pick up to add a segment or a round table or whatever, I go back to pocket. In fact, one of the topics for today that you're about to hear is about a pesticide study that was done in New York State. I have it held in pocket as an example. And in that moment when you encounter something, someone tells you something, somebody emails you something and so on, it's so easy. It's a quick tap tap on your phone or on your computer to say save to pocket. Love it. Getpocket.com. They have a mobile app. It's all free. And this has been around for a long time. There's a bunch of different variations on the theme from other providers. But Pocket is one that has been around forever. 
And if you ever want an organized approach to save things in your life related to whatever it is you're interested in, you can create your own tags, uh, movie trivia, <laughs> whatever moves you, right? Movies to watch, you can save that. Um, I use it extensively for recipes too. Uh, I'm constantly saving recipes and venturing. Every weekend I make something new. That's kind of one of the things that I do. And so getpocket.com is the recommendation from what I use. Topic number one, pesticide, New York beeswax. This is about the aforementioned study that I've been holding in pocket related to a, a study of three different functions of hives, commercial, sideliner, and hobbyist colonies. Pesticide contaminations in the wax, what did they receive? Way back when, Penn State, specifically Marion and Jim Frazier, did a study about pesticides in wax. And what they found is, you know, there's pesticides, there's fungicides, there's acaricides, which are things to use to kill varroa mites in beekeeping parlance, and other items that are in our wax. This was a study from Marianne Fraser, which was landmark to me because it really sent home the message about what's inside our wax. This most recent one, the study was published on September 19, 2023, but the information pre-study was talked about quite a bit. And now, unfortunately, it's been released and it's locked. You go to journal's webpage when you search that title and you'll find that you could read the abstract, but you can't get to the thing unless you go through the paywall. Someone recently sent me a link, by the way, to SciHub, which is a Kevin moment. This is someone somehow creating a website that if you type an article header in and or the link, they automatically open it. There's been a conversation from researchers where in order to get published, they have to pay money to publish these journals. But unfortunately, then you have to pay to get access to them. Sometimes they're free and other times like this one, it's locked behind the paywall. So hopefully in time, this one will free up and we could read all of the details about it. But I'm going to do a quick synopsis from this. And I'm going to reflect on a couple of things that are interesting when thinking back to Marianne Fraser's work and other work that have come out and answered a couple of questions that I've always had and continue to follow and monitor over time. So net-net, these are some of the key takeaways. Pesticides are detected in all of the samples. It includes 34 fungicides, 33 insecticides, and 22 herbicides. And each wax sample contained 7 to 35 different residues. As you assess that, the first takeaway is yes, there's stuff in your wax. And the reason I know that is the studies that they did took a large contingent of commercial hives, a rather sizable contingent of sideliner hives, and 
I think there were, if I'm not quoting this wrong, 50 everyday hobbyist hives in this batch. That's a pretty decent recollection of what's in there, as far as I'm concerned. Wax from colonies managed by commercial beekeepers contain the most residues. And this kind of makes sense. It's not a bad thing for commercial people. It's just part of doing business. Why? Because they're taking their things out to places where pesticides are, given they're doing pollination. And I'm going to throw in there that they probably hold their comb the longest of the three different beekeeping types. The bad news is hobbyists were second. <laughs> and it's a terrible finding. And that should not be the case, and I'll talk about that in a moment. What I found interesting, and this harkens back to my learnings from Marianne Fraser, is nearly all the wax samples on this study, 98.6, contain the pesticide synergist piperinol butoxide. I have no idea whether I said that right, but I'm pretty sure I did it right. P-I-P-E-R-O-N-Y-L Butoxide is B-U-T-O-X-I-D-E. This is a compound that makes animals, insects, and fungi more sensitive to insecticides and fungicides. And in essence, manufacturers are putting this in as an adjunct to make the main ingredient, this is my understanding, more effective. And so, no surprise, and I remember this distinctly from Marianne sitting in a room with her saying that we're all concerned about the main ingredient, let's say it's amitraz or some of the other things that are in our comb, but the fact of the matter is it's the synergistic effects of the ingredients that are labeled inert on the products that we probably should be more concerned with. And well, this one is rather interesting in finding because it's everywhere. This was the thing that I've been watching for. Most of the samples, 86%, contained common varroicides used to control honeybee parasites, including, dang it, Kumafos and Amitraz breakdown products. I wanted to know when was it we would see Kumafos and Fluvalinate, which is not mentioned by the way, fall out of our comb. The shelf life of this stuff has never really been talked about in the wild, as far as I know. We've always talked about the use of cumifos and fluvalinate, which were original varroa mite treatments, a decade plus ago. We don't use them anymore. At least I hope nobody's using them. They're not effective. But guess what? They're still in the wax. They're not really harmful to humans, obviously, because they've been there for decades. But they're still there. Now, we've been using Amitraz, which is Apivar, in our colonies. And Amitraz can be found, and theoretically, it's not harmful to us. Obviously, the EPA wouldn't have allowed us to use it as a varroicide. But one of the things that you learn over time if you follow this is that Amitraz is a product that as time goes on, deconstructs into other chemicals. And so when it says Amitraz breakdown products, that's not a surprise. 
because Amitraz has a long shelf life. And so this is really kind of like the modern version of what Marianne did. And the other side of this that's listed in there, as we said, there's fungicides. There's insecticides in these samples. 93.1 contained a fungicide, I don't know how to say this word, D-I-F-E-N-O-C-O-N-A-Z-O-L-E. This is a Kevin moment. You watch these TV ads on TV for products. We have them. And one of my favorite ones for BMS, the company I work for, was Aripiprazole. <laughs> we have one now called Sotictu, which is Decravacetinib which, you know, unless you practice, you can't say these words. I have no idea where they come up with diphenoconazole. <laughs> Who comes up with this stuff? End of Kevin moment. The net-net takeaway for you and for your bees to make them happy, and I've been on this bandwagon for a long time, but I'm going to pull out the trumpet every time I have the chances. Rotate out your comb. Old comb needs to go. I don't know how remnants of this stuff is to the bees, but when it's allowed to build up year on year on year, and one of the things that is, in, it's like branded, imprinted in my brain, is Marianne Fraser's, almost to the point of tears, talking about how we do studies in the government about these products in isolation. We have absolutely no idea when we mix them together in some primordial ooze, which is what our wax is becoming, how that impacts what's living in there. I hearken it to living in your house and having mold and having uh, what's radon gas and things like that sick environments that you live in. Well, that's what we're doing to our bees when we're allowing all this stuff to ride herd in our comb and we don't switch it out. I swear to you that ever since I got on the bandwagon of rotating out my comb, my colonies are doing better. I could just see it in their operation. And it's nice as a beekeeper to have fresh comb in your colonies. Now, the bad news is I'm still using foundation, which is coming with cumifos and flipalinate. But I have taken to putting foundationless frames and letting the bees build their own back rib that they're building their comb out. But that's me. So I'll have a link to the restricted access, sorry, uh, article where you can read the summation of this. And if you pay attention, these folks from New York are doing a great job. And they're out talking. So look for Karen, K-A-R-Y-N, Bischoff, B-I-S-C-H-O-F-F. -F, and Scott McArt. And some of the other authors on this. They're out in the beekeeping world doing talks on their learnings. And there's so much you can hear from them directly. I know they've been presenting at EAS and other places and you can, might be able to catch them in a talk or online, look them up, and learn from this. Their work is incredible and it's important. 
and I hope that I can convince you to pay attention to this dynamic in your beekeeping operation, as I think it's one of the more important things to keep your eye on the ball for this. And do look for research information out there on the internet for them. And thank them, again, for what they're doing. We need people to continue to do this work to emphasize what's in our wax and what's in our colonies. We talk about Varroa mites, and we know how bad they are. But I think secondary to Varroa mites, one of the more important detrimental aspects of keeping bees, beyond the form factor of our hives, which are actually terrible for bees, is this what's in the wax they're like the threefold things that I think beekeepers need to spend time on. Topic number two, I call this sink your teeth into this. Winter is coming. And I have always had an interest in thinking about how bees overwinter in the colony. And studying how the winter cluster lives, operates, survives is a fascinating topic and one that you can find a lot of information. Harkening back to studies from 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and further back even. If you think about the way the winter cluster operates, when it gets cold, generality below 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, Kevin moment. Sorry to start so early. I found this thing on the internet the other day that said, how to convert Celsius to Fahrenheit. There's certain things that I'll make this up. If it's 28 degrees Celsius, it's 82 degrees Fahrenheit. You flip the number. I made that up for illustratively. I don't know if that's actually true, but there were like four, and obviously I can't remember them, key ones that if you remember them, you can flip them around. And if you can commit that to memory, then you have a general sense of like, well, 20 degrees is how many degrees Fahrenheit Celsius to Fahrenheit. I, I don't, anyway, look that up. I don't have a link to it at the moment. I need to get back to task here. End up Kevin moment. When bees at 45 degrees Fahrenheit, generally thereabouts start to cluster they come together and the adages, this has been printed in Bee Source, this has been printed in Bee Culture, American Journal, you look it up. Studies have been summarized. A cluster is formed, the queen is at the center, the bees operate at maintaining brood through the cycle of winter until spring comes. Heater bees are at the center, doing bee aerobics and the outside mantle holds the heat in and that is how the colony operates during the times when it gets colder. If you look a little bit further as to the mechanics of this, there are suppositions that make this work. One, bees can move their flight muscle, basically like our shoulders, that would flap the wings, but they have the ability not to flap the wing because, you know, they can't be in next to each other flapping wings. They basically loosen, slacken that muscle, and it doesn't flap the wing, but the movement of the muscle generates heat. That coupled with the fact that the heat from the thorax can travel and the design of the fluid flow through the body of the bee 
does or doesn't warm the abdomen and so on. Maintains heat. They warm the comb substrate that they're in and amongst. So sometimes they'll warm themselves up and go into a cell and warm the wax. And then the wax takes the heat and holds the heat. And there's all the neat things. I've talked about this on the show, but really what I want to get to is the mantle. And so like the earth's crust, bees form a nucleus at the center that's loosely coupled where the heat is generated. The heat transmits from center out and the bees on the outside benefit from the radiating heat that comes off for convection, conduction. There's all kinds of um, functions and formulas. But the bees are side to side, nestled next to each other on the end, on the outside, forming a shell. And because bees have hair, it's a lot like the downy, downy feathers of a bird. It holds the heat in. Think about a duck or something that fluffs itself up and a down jacket or whatever the, the structure is, whatever helps you to make that connection of holding heat in. Now there's a study. Honeybee clusters, not insulation, but stressful heat sink. This comes from Derek Mitchell, who has published a large number of articles and has a body of work about how this all works. If you're not familiar with Derek Mitchell, he's probably one of three people that I know of that continually tries to push the science in this area of how to bees overwinter. And he's just released this salvo that says, we've got it wrong. And if you think about Samuel Ramsey's milestone work of bees feed on the hemochemolymph and la 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 for the fat body thing for varroa mite, this might change the game for how do bees overwinter. Now, one of the things that I know is that there were studies from the government where they put sensors in and monitored hives and I don't want to go down this whole path, but there's a lot of data out there. But really what's happening is there were a number of people who assessed the data from those studies and came up with this hypothesis that the bees at the mantle of the cluster are holding the heat in. From the Journal of Royal Society Interface, royalsocietypublishing.org website, Mitchell has proposed using mechanical analysis with a bunch of different equations that if you evaluate one aspect of what the commonly held belief is that the bees on the outside insulate the cluster, that's a false premise. Whether this matters materially, hard to say, but he was challenging the status quo. When you look at the data that he came up with, he basically started from a foundational thing that said, what does something have to do in order to be considered an insulative property? Now, you would not mistake me for the talented Mr. Ripley with being able to read all the equations in the study. But my takeaway is he found four factors that he believes qualify something as having insulative properties. And then he did analysis of the anatomy of the bees and the way that they behave and debunked each one of these things as being the probability. 
And so I'm going to cut to the chase and tell you, after reading this extremely complicated piece, which I'm trying to digest, and I don't consider this the final word, what I think he was trying to communicate. That if you take bees in their normal operation inside the cavity of the colony, inside the cavity of the hive, sorry, as a colony, they occupy the full space. Theoretically, a large colony takes up all of the interior on a normal operation. But as it gets colder and they're forced to coalesce because they need the warmth, when they come together, they're leaving an airspace around them. The bigger the airspace, the more pressure on the bees to have to generate heat to keep themselves warm because the outer mantle is not insulative, it is a sink. And so the fact of the matter is the heat being generated at the core of the cluster is actually being pulled out because the bees on the outside do not have insulative properties and cannot maintain the heat. And so I hearken it illustratively to your outside on a cold day with a bunch of different people and there's a, a really cold chill in the air. And even though you have layers on and you're wearing winter coats, you're still cold because you're outside and you're not moving around. And somebody started a campfire. You will get dangerously close to that campfire in order to get to the heat. You're going to push into it. And that's what Derek is saying is happening with the bees. The bees on the outside are not insulative. And yes, he does acknowledge that bees that create hate will eventually come out to the outside to cool. But most of the bees on the outside are cold and they're trying to push into the campfire. And when they do that, they break the insulated property and they actually become a heat sink. They're drawing the heat out. And that what happens over time, especially as it gets colder, is the bees on the outside are stressed and their number one job is to push in closer to the heat because they're cold. That's the takeaway. They're not out there holding, you know, hands. That's an anamorphic thing, but getting, you know, cozy with their neighbors to, to make sure that they don't let the heat out. They're in a constant thrust to push in and it's a life and death situation and it's stressful to them. And so where does this come into play? He started to parlay this into the practice of our beekeeping hives, that they're not insulative enough. They're not equivalent to what a tree is. And the fact of the matter is we built Langstroth boxes with three quarter inch ply in order to make them the right weight and whatever for human interaction and shipping and pollination and so on. But they don't have the insulative property in order for the bees to be able to occupy the full space and maintain warmth and a reasonable atmosphere around the colony. So a colony in a tree occupies most of the space and they don't have those air gaps around them. And that's where the problem comes. If I'm interpreting what he's trying to say, and again, if you go read this article, you'll understand how complicated all their formulas are. And I'm just taking a first pass at it. But the speculation is, my speculation is the colder it gets, the more the bees push together, the bigger the air envelope is around them. 
and the more stress that creates because it's holding the colder air and closing in on the bees around where if they're in a tree with insulated properties and they occupy a smaller space coming back to Tom Seeley and Darwinian they can do better it makes me now make the leap to polystyrene hives they hold better they're better insulative but maybe they're not good enough and he goes through some formulas that says how good a poly is compared to a regular three-quarter inch wooden box in nature hopefully they pick a tree with a large density and they can control that we're not giving them anything like that the closest thing that I've seen to that is the vino hives if you know about this hive it's a regular box but he's surrounding it with multiple layers of insulation it's incredible the amount of engineering top and bottom and so on that's someone who's doing what I think Dara Mitchell would think is optimal. They're creating a huge envelope and right-sizing the bees inside the cavity for winter. And so this is leaning towards the notion of insulating your hives for winter, that you should be doing this. Now, commercial folks aren't going to do this. And then he also has the commentary, and I know I'm all over the place, but I'm just trying to cover the gamut without going crazy, of how people are now overwintering bees in shelters. And so is that a good operation? When they maintain the temperature in a specific way, is it good or bad based on this new dynamic of the outer perimeter of a cluster is a sink, not insulation? When we take that into account, is what we're doing the right thing to do. Now, I'm just going to take all of this and figuratively hold my hands out in front of me like I'm holding some thing, and I'm going to put it over here on the shelf and put it aside. We've been keeping bees in Langstroth wooden boxes for centuries. Ish. And bees over winter. But ultimately, I think a lot of us understand that it's probably not optimal, but what are we going to do? As a regular beekeeper, you're going to go start engineering some sort of... There's very few people who are going down that path. But with science like this, it says, and I always come back to this, I'm a hobbyist beekeeper. I advocate for the hobbyist. I love sideliners and I love commercial people and respect and appreciate what they do, but... I'm more about what, what the hobbyists do, right? That's my, my niche, if you want to call it that. And so I've been on this bandwagon forever thinking, you know, hobbyists should have better hives. Our hives sit stationary in, on a hive stand out in our backyard, right? Couple hives. Why can't we have a better piece of equipment to work with? I almost feel like, and I've learned this over the years with the various hives that I work, that the Layens hive is actually the best format because the inside of the box is compact, depending on what kind you build. The long contiguous frames keep the heat up and down and the thick walls along with horizontal format, which is amazing to work like a top bar. It has all these aspects, right? Yeah. So, this is a very interesting place to go and 
I love the fact, I don't know how Derek Mitchell is perceived in the world, but he's constantly pushing this. And I'm going to have a link to this. If you have a scientific bent, you can understand equations and formulas and, and mathematical engineering. You need to take a look at this. I sent this over to Etienne Tart of the day I discovered it and asked him to take a look. He sent me a note back saying he's going to take a bit to process it. But this is cool. And Etienne is one of the people like Derek Mitchell that I consider someone who, he's an engineer, can, can get into this space and tell us things that us mere mortal human being people can't possibly fathom. And break it down to something that we can grasp and understand. That's the one thing about the Derek Mitchell stuff that I've read. I, I can't understand half of it. I'm not terrible at math, but I'm not anywhere near the league that he is uh, when it comes into this. But conceptually, I now have a different take on this. The bees on the outside of the cluster, they're not insulating the cluster. They're drawing heat in order to survive. That might be the new way I'm going to perceive this. Over the winter period, I'll take time to go back and reread this thing a couple times and see if I can pull out the tasty morsels of it. But given it just got published, to my knowledge, uh, I wanted to share this with everybody and I'll have a link to it in the show notes and you can go read it. And if you're somebody who can read this and give us back some sort of uh, interpretation of it, give me a ring, Kevin at bkcorner.org. I'd love to hear your take on this. And thanks to Derek Mitchell for continuing to do all this work. I'm so appreciative of Scott McCart. I was talking about him before and Derek Mitchell and Etienne Tardif and all these other people who, like two beekeepers at a bar, continue to have this dialogue with beekeepers and share what they're learning. Topic number three, this one is listener mail. One more topic for the episode. Cleaning out supers is the first topic. Jared of the Webster clan wrote in to share an experience about bees taking down the last vestiges of honey left over in honey supers when stored over an inner cover. In recapping what was mentioned on a previous show, there's a standing practice out there that if you place wet honey supers after harvesting or boxes possibly that have some nectar stored in them but not enough to make it through winter over an inner cover over the brood nest under a roof bees will in time draw them out and the contents in the nectar will go down into the nest area i was lamenting how my experience is it just doesn't seem to work in the times that i've tried it so some interesting points in his observation. This is almost a verbatim summary from his experience in an email. In past seasons, he put his wet supers above the inner cover for the bees to clean out. And there wasn't much moving down in below the inner cover. It was just kind of sitting there. This year, he had some delays in getting back to those stored boxes over the inner cover. And after a week or more, on very chilly nights, the bees were showing signs of pulling down those resources. So he shared that he gambled on the long-range forecast and left them on for some additional time. And eventually, he got a warm spurt 
to go back and see what happened to them. And he found that the honey had been pulled from the supers at that point. And his conjecture was, if I could sum it up, quote, the trick really does seem to be that turn in the weather that pushes them to bring it all down close, end quote. That's an interesting input to the practice instruction. It gives me pause to think that perhaps in haste to see something happening, I wasn't patient enough. And you had to operate under the right conditions where you had those cold nights that the bees would draw it down, but then bring it down to the cluster. And, you know, that kind of makes sense from a biological standpoint. They're not going to want something up and away. And if it's available, they'll pull it down. I'll have to think about that in a practice, um, you know, next time and consider the weather. If there's warm nights every night and so on, eh, who knows? Maybe it doesn't work. But, you know, good stuff, Jared. Thanks for sharing your experience. This is Beekeepers Learning from Beekeepers the way it should be. Next feedback is about the warm way. Talked about in the previous lesson, Dale Pepoon, P-E-P-O-O-N, wrote in, and shared a video recommendation that not only elaborates the setup of running something the warm way, but it shows a real take, a real-world experience for creating a custom full hive setup that is designed from the bottom up to be operated in the warm way. In the video, there's a number of points that echo the benefits of turning the hive 90 degrees as it relates to how the bees come and go to the front of the hive while you are standing behind it to draw frames from the back reaching straight in front of you where the left side of the frame is to your left and the right side is to your right and you can draw it out. You don't have to turn your arms to pull a frame that's running front to back in front of you. That's one of the benefits I was talking about in the last episode. If you think about the warm way, if you didn't listen, our frames run front to back from the front entrance. If you're standing in front, they run front to back. But if you turn them 90 degrees where the face of the frame would be facing you, that's considered the warm way because the air coming in from the entrance hits that first frame and it doesn't go through the seams. It hits the first frame and is contained. So interestingly enough, the video producer apparently didn't even consider warm versus cold way. From what I saw in the video, he just simply did it because it made an improvement in the practice of working the bees. I have a link to the video in the show notes, which is Scott, the video channel owner, elaborating his journey from a conventional Langstroth hive to his custom box setup that he created in his woodshop. You know, while you're there, be sure to poke around at his other content too. There are several interesting videos in the stack that you can get lost on. Uh, Beekeeping in Northern Ontario. That is the YouTube webpage for that, if you want to take a look at it. So good one, Dale. Thanks for responding to my request for additional commentary on running hives in the warm way. And I have to, have to also share that Dale wasn't the only one to recommend the Northern Ontario YouTube channel videos. Jared who I just mentioned, also sent a note about Scotty running his hives with a custom side entrance. Now, related but not the same, Tom Manasco Jr. 
he wins the prize for the alternative approach, simple, very smart, an alternative way to change the airflow in a hive. Now, if I understand this right, he runs an inner cover under the brood box and above the bottom board. And think of how this works. If I interpret his statements correctly, it acts as a deterrent to pests trying to get in the hive. And it also creates that air barrier change. When you think about it, it's not too dissimilar in my mind to what a slatted rack might do. He's reporting that the queen will lay all the way down to the bottom of the frames. And I would think that this would emulate, for those of you who have small hive beetle problems, hive beetle control and steroids. Because there are inventions out there where people are putting barrier ledges, if you can, around the bottom board that will prevent the small hive beetle from walking in the hive and walking up the side of the bottom board, up the side of the boxes and going in the hives because they'll encounter some sort of barrier, this baffle that goes around it. Well, imagine if you have a full inner cover sitting over the bottom board. The only thing that they can go through is the hole and certainly the bees can defend that against any pests. I wonder what that would do to Varroa mites. That's an interesting way too. So again, by my way of thinking, this would not be too dissimilar from the benefits of airspace when using a slatted rack and would change it. But I can also think about some possible cons. If you run this through the winter, would the bees leave all kinds of debris on it? And if you wanted to clean it off, you'd have to take the stack down to the bottom board in order to get it out of there. I think there'd probably be some other notions about whether that would work or cause more headaches. But the cool thing about this, and this is what I love about it, is the simplicity of it. It's not a special piece of equipment. It's something we use every day. I have several spares. And uh, you just pull the stack off, put it on there, and run it that way. I wonder what it would be like to run for a season in that manner. Yeah, pretty cool. Next topic, Helle Lynn Erickson. Hopefully I said the name in correctly wrote in about the honey tasting sheet that we have on our website. LA is doing a tasting in Norway and wanted to know if they could share the Microsoft Word version. Apparently the link we had on our website wasn't working and I fixed it by the way, but I sent the Word document because apparently not everyone is fluent in English in Norway and they wanted to convert it to their local languages. Kelly wrote back saying they had a tasting of 17 honeys at a recent session and for the first time one of the responses from the people imbibing came back with notes of tobacco from one of the products from Albania which apparently produces tobacco. I have to say going back to the theme running throughout this episode that the memories of doing honey tastings is something I have a strong connection to. Going back to memories, if you've never done one, they're a lot of fun. You should look into it. It's a great social activity to plan and it's really not hard to 
get local honeys that have different variants. Even if you did something like goldenrod honey versus wildflower versus buckwheat or whatever, those are something that's probably in everyone's area. But what we do is wherever we go, wherever we travel, we buy honey from that region. We were just down in Florida and we got orange blossom honey. So thanks for the message, Heli. And I'm glad that things worked out with the document. And if you're interested in that, just go look for honey tasting on the website and you'll find a link to the honey tasting sheet. We actually took the sheet and had it printed into like a legal pad. And when we go to a meeting, we hand them everyone one and then we have tastings that we hand out. But enough on that. Next topic, Anthony Iannarelli. I want to hope that I said that name correctly. Wrote in with a suggestion for the warm way, coming back to it. I'm presupposing what he wrote, that you would close off the entrance and you would, quote, consider using a rotating entrance disc often found in top bar hives. Again, cheap and easy. You would drill a hole and then screw this in and that could be your side entrance. That's a low commitment way to a side entrance if you ever wanted to make the change. Let me explain what I mean by that. You would not have to make a custom bottom board or make any changes. You could close off your traditional entrance, drill a hole in the side of your box or your bottom board and give it a try. And look, if this isn't your thing, all you have to do is take a golf tee or plug the hole on the side and pull the entrance reducer off that blocked the entrance and you'd be back to normal. But if you wanted to try this without any custom equipment, just drill a hole and added bonus. The hole in the side of your hive, depending on how you did it, could be used for oxalic acid, which, Kevin moment, this is the time where hives are mostly broodless and Thanksgiving is a traditional time period for people to get out their vaporizers and go zap the mites. If you did a great job at protecting your winter bees by August 8th to October 31st, then you should have low mite thresholds. But if you really wanted to get a banging spring, you can pop in and do a couple oxalic acid vaporizations right now and kill any varroa mites that are lingering on the bees and then you'd have a really clean and prosperous spring when the bees come out pretty interesting and uh yeah anthony if you hear this i got the other part of the message and i will be circling back with the race team and i'll let you know what they said about that so listener mail thank you I wanted to uh, take one more moment and give a special thanks out to Mark Olivo. Uh, Mark made a donation to the show through the PayPal link on the homepage. And I don't say this enough. If you're making a donation here and there for the effort, I truly appreciate it. Um, I've talked about all the investments that I've made in the equipment, future investments that I'm planning, and I'm planning some pretty big ones. I was just talking with Sharon about some pretty expensive stuff that I'm looking to purchase. 
this Christmas season. So, yeah, I don't make any money in anything that gets donated to the show, which is rare. Um, that goes right back into producing the program. So, thank you, Mark. I truly appreciate that and uh, hope you'll know that you can trust that it'll go to use to buying some equipment for remotes and some other things that I'm working on. Um, the last thing that I'll say about that along the same line is promotion of the show is greatly appreciated. If you're in iTunes or any of your podcast apps and you just give a five star or give a like or even leave a comment pro or con, it's so appreciated. I, I know that uh, I don't get in the habit of producing the show as regularly as I should, but hopefully when I do show up, <laughs> um, you folks appreciate all the work that goes into this. And, you know, I'm, I'm having a blast after producing this since 2010. I'm still going and, and enjoying putting the show together. So, again, back to Mark. Thank you. Truly appreciate it. So now I want to talk about the local hive report. Uh, it's later in the evening. I started recording this earlier this morning on Sunday and I have gone and done my domestic duties and made my way through the day. And now it's quarter after 10 in the evening after settling in and just trying to wrap up some of the final parts of this. We did go into the bees today. I think I'm in trouble. That's my commentary. Uh, I have said in the last local hive report that I did not have a good feeling of what I saw from the bees, especially since I didn't take care of them through the critical period due to the medical problem I had. In looking at it, hive one was dead, gone. Hive four was dead, gone. I had reported that the top bar hive was dead and gone. Uh, looking at the clusters, Things look really not very well suited. Um, still in the treatment free. And I, I was thinking about this the other day. I came up with some sort of term somewhere. I'm going to have to go look it up again. Because it's not necessarily treatment free. I'm not putting Varroa treatments in the hive. But if the bees need to be fed, which some people would tell you is a treatment... And I don't want to get into that argument. Then I'm going to feed them. And I think what I could have done to prop up these colonies is feed them through the time period where I was at a commission. And now I look at them, the size of the clusters and the position of them. They have enough resources, but they don't look very good. I think one of them was small, two frames, and that was about it. I am not optimistic about getting a lot of hives through winter. I am pragmatic about it, though, that whatever comes through, and I don't think I'll lose everything, could be wrong. That's a possible risk that I face. But if something makes it through and I end up rebuilding from a couple hives, so be it. Then I'll only have five hives instead of 20 hives. That's okay. <laughs> That's the way... I kind of see the world at this point. I'm just going to take what life gives me. The polystyrene hive sitting on pad three, which is a double deep poly, looks great. That thing had a really big cluster. I'm sure they have decent resources. 
and everything is good there. Everything else there looked dodgy. I did not look at the Lion's Hive, although that thing's been running for a couple years without intervention, so I have no idea what the state of the queen is. Didn't get the chance to look in there. There's a polystyrene hive sitting on pad 12 that I think is probably good. It was a decent hive earlier this year. It had plenty of stores. The polystyrene hive over by the satellite, I think is okay. And I know that the three hives at Valley Crest looked really good the last time I looked in them. So five hives with the strong chance of something coming through. I don't believe I'm going to be physically empty handed, but I'm pretty sure the rest of them are all pretty risky. So not the way I want to go into winter. Holy cow. But, you know, circumstances being what they are, that's what's going to happen. And we'll see. I think I'm going to take a beating this year. It's funny, I was talking to Bob Kloss and he told me for some reason he feels like he's going to have the same way. We had a pact that the two of us were going to not do this. If one of us had a bad year, the other one had to have a good year so that if something happened, we could replenish our stores. I don't feel confident at all of what I got. And if Bob's not good, hmm. <laughs> of course, don't, you know, don't cry for me, Argentina. We'll be fine. We're going to get through. It's just I don't particularly like to lose large quantities of hives because of all the work it takes to clean them up. But it's okay. You know, one of the things I talked about in the last show, and this will probably be the last local high report of the year, is the fact that I want to go through the full inventory of everything I have again. It's been a couple years. I want to get any of the old comb out, and I want to get rid of any of the old boxes. And if I only have a handful of hives that somewhat aids that situation by allowing me, I'm trying to do glass half full <laughs> here i hope that's coming through so local hive report i'll check the box but i really should be putting a red x in it it doesn't sound very good to me and well we'll see what happens come spring we'll lick our wounds and we'll get things sorted out yeah i think it's time to uh, offer up a couple of closing comments and get out of dodge here i wanted to share a kind of funny thing between sharon and i I have no idea how funny this was, but to, to you, I mean, we were cleaning the back closet where we keep our bee suits and our veils and other equipment. And before we went out to work the bees today, she helped me with this. Uh, we were getting some things prepped and she said, it's cold out there. You want some fuzzy gloves? And I said, ex nay on the Uzzy Fay. <laughs> because I had to explain to her that black, dark, fuzzy gloves are not a good way to go when you're working bees. And it's just those funny moments when you think back about fond memories to finish the show in the same way that it started. Is I love the fact that Sharon takes the time sometimes to come work bees with me when we do it together. In a life where she's now retired from her job she has a little more time and has spent time the two of us doing different tasks back and forth we always like a lot of couples you know do your own thing but lately we've been doing those things together when we cook together for example we call it cooking with love because food always comes out better when you cook with love 
And so anyway, it was just a funny moment. And it makes me think about the fact that she went out and helped me today do a bunch of different things to finish up all the final, final things. It's really late in the year for us. But uh, I wanted to share that one of the reasons we've not put out a show just recently is we were in Florida. We went for a trip down to visit her mother and it was so nice <laughs> when it was 70 plus almost 80 degrees i think it was 80 degrees we actually went swimming in the pool while we were there and so the show releases have been a little delayed because we were taking a little hiatus have a lot of vacation time to use at the end of the year and that leads me to my next comment which is i have a whole bunch of different things on the to-do list to wrap up i want to build some new equipment I want to refurbish the flow hive exterior. It needs to be repainted. There's a couple pieces of uh, kit that I want to invent or make. And the cool thing is while vacation time that you take for say the holiday season, we're closed for a week because the company shuts down. Plus I'm burning some extra vacation days. Hopefully will afford me the time in my to-do list to go plug a couple things. I have every Friday off this December because I had that many vacation days to use. So there's no excuse not to find the time to do a couple of the things that have to be done. One of the to-do items, I have been so delinquent, but going away and then the Thanksgiving holiday and the things that we did have prevented me from getting to the managed mentoring. And I said I wasn't going to do this, so I really need to pick up the ball and start running with that. Oh, you know, there's one more thing that I want to do in an upcoming episode is Double Trouble Part 2. It's been some time since I've had my twin brother on the show, and it is long overdue. I'd like to talk to him and just see how he's doing at this tenure of learning beekeeping. They do a great job, he and Karina, uh, his wife, and... It's time to have him on the program and ask him what he's up to and what he's planning to do and how he's doing with things and what he struggled with and what he did well and how much any made and things like that. Uh, so Keith, I know you listen to the show. It's time. Sometime here in December, we're going to plug you in for the new year. Whatever the case, I am thankful for Thanksgiving and reflecting on life and enjoying the beekeeping season from 2023 i think today is probably the last day this season that i will be in the bees and actually see bees on the cluster and whatever and when i look back on everything up until august 30th uh you know life went pretty good so not a bad season and i really want to get back to queen rearing for next year uh, that is a must-do for us. I think I've rambled enough. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for being here, everybody. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving holiday, if that applies to you. And I hope that you're making beekeeping memories. Take care. <laughs>